Anyway, you come be part of it. All right, let's get into the Bible. Nehemiah chapter, Nehemiah chapter 3. It's probably good that we don't have any visitors today. Because this message is for us. Notice I didn't say you. I said us. And I'm not, I don't have any agenda. I just know what this message is, is about here. And uh, we're building a church here. And when you build a church, there's some things the church has to emphasize. Churches don't emphasize it anymore. One of the things the church needs to emphasize is preaching on hell. You don't hear many... I'm, talking, I'm not talking about liberal. I'm talking about, quote-unquote, supposedly Baptist churches. You don't hear any preaching on hell anymore. Now, I haven't preached on hell yet, but when we get to that point where we, we're going to, we'll preach on it. And... Uh, there are certain things you have to emphasize. And a lot of people don't do it today, pastors don't do it today, because it turns people off. And we live in a society that don't want to think about hell. And, of course, uh, you better think about it, because uh, if you're saved, that's great, but how about your friends you work with, and, you know, and, and there's always people around you that are unsaved. So there's things that we have to emphasize. And today I want to preach on something that the Bible tells us we have to emphasize. In fact, in the gates. Last week we talked about the water gate. And we talked about the Watergate being the preaching ministry of this church and it being the central program of this church. The teaching of the Bible is everything that we do. And that's why I don't, you know, I mean, there are some churches, you know, that, that make, a big deal more, make a big deal more about the baked beans and the chicken than do the preaching. And uh, we don't care about that. I don't care about anything other than the preaching of the Word of God. Everything else can change. Everything else can fluctuate. Everything else doesn't matter to me. We do it because we're doing God's business, but, it can, it can, but the preaching of the Word of God cannot change. The central ministry of this church has to be the water gate. We talked about that last week. What it produces? It produces the right attitude toward the Word of God, and that's what, that was your second test. I've given you two tests. You're going to get the third one today. First test was, how do you know that you're growing spiritually? How do you know that you're making progress in the Word of God on a daily basis? Because that's tough. Well, you know because that when you hear good, hard preaching that just kind of puts it to you, and good, hard preaching that really just kind of lets you have it in a good way, you walk out of here saying, boy, that was tough, but I, I appreciate that, I needed that, and uh, that was good. That shows you how you're growing, because the Bible says that he that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. Then we gave you test two, love the book. How do you know you love the Word of God? Well, you love the, we know you love the Word of God when you, uh, you can't leave home without it. I mean, we talked about the little tool deal, you know, and uh, you know how you, whatever you do for life, for a living, if you leave it at home and you try to go do your work, how it ruins your whole day, well, you ought to be the same way with the Word of God. That Bible ought to be something you can't leave. If I leave house in the morning, I don't say goodbye and kiss my wife goodbye. My whole day is screwed up. I mean, it's just something like that. So you've got to have those things. And the Bible ought to be just like that. We're going to give you test three today. And uh, back in Nehemiah chapter, uh, chapter, chapter 3, verses uh, uh, 28 and 29, he says this, From above the horse gate repaired the priest, everyone over against his house. After them uh, repaired Zadok, the son of Emer, over against his house, and after him repaired also Shemaiah, the son of Shechemiah, the keeper of the east gate. Father, we thank you and praise you for all you do for us. We pray, Lord, as we look at these two gates today, that you'll help us understand all that you have for us. We love you. We ask you, Father, to take the word of God and make it real to our hearts and our lives. Uh, challenge us, Lord. Build us as a church. Build us into a unity of one. And the Lord will be careful to give you all the honor and praise in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. 
Now, today we're going to talk about two more gates. These two gates go together. And uh, they go together because they stand for, without a doubt, the most important doctrine in the Word of God. Now, I don't lessen any doctrine or teaching in the Word of God, but God puts emphasis on certain things. One of the things I've learned in life as a Christian, this is a good little rule, you want to write this down someplace, never emphasize something more than God emphasizes it. Never de-emphasize something more than God de-emphasizes it. Always look at the thing and see what God says about it, and if He emphasizes something more than anything else, then you need to know that this is very important. And this is the doctrine we're going to talk about today. Because the horse gate and the eastern gate represent the most important doctrine in the Bible, and that is the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without a doubt, the doctrine of the second coming is the most important doctrine in the Word of God. And it's the doctrine that really everything focuses around. And I, in fact, I don't know if you caught this last week. I didn't say anything about this last week. I, I get, thought I'd give you a, this this week and see if some of you caught it. Uh, but last week we talked about the water gate. Now, the eastern gate and the horse gate are two different gates. And they represent for us two ways into this city. The horse gate is for us. We'll talk about that today. The eastern gate is for the Lord. We'll probably get into that next week. But these two gates are side by side, and they represent the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to see this. Last week, we talked about the water gate. Did you catch this? Look over here in verse 26. It says, it says in 26, Moreover, the Nethiums dwelt in Ophel, under the place over against the water gate, look at it, toward the east. Toward the east. It is the only gate that is mentioned that is says in there toward the east because the preaching of the Word of God, the preaching ministry of this church always should look toward the east. You realize when they bury dead people today? You realize they bury them facing the east? You realize there is not a graveyard in this country where they're not buried with a head facing the east? You know why? Now, there's no rule of thumb in the state of Missouri that says all dead people got to be facing east. It's one of those things that man doesn't understand why he does it, but man does it because the Bible says when the Lord comes back, he's coming from the east. So everybody's buried, whether they believe the Bible or not. Oh, you wait till we get a little bit into this and you see some things about what the Bible does with people that don't believe it. But whether they believe it or not, everybody that is buried... They're buried facing because when the Lord comes back, they're going to meet him in a good sense or a bad sense. But as the old game used to play, when we used to play hide and seek and you used to get out there and hide, you know what the guy used to say? Ready or not, here I come. And ready or not, here he comes. Without a doubt, the most important doctrine in all the Bible is the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And that's why the water gate, the Bible says, is toward the east. Because the preaching of this ministry should always have as its basic doctrine and its basic format and its basic purpose is that the God's got a plan and that plan is built around the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible. We've got a lot of people here that know a lot about the Bible. And we've got some meteor Christians. Christians who know uh, quite a bit about the Bible. We always have new people that don't know uh, a whole lot about the Bible, but they want to learn, and that's great. That's what we're here for. That's why I try to break these things down so everybody can get it. And as always, 
all week long. If you want to spend some time with me coming through and help me break down my lessons on Sunday or what we talked about on Monday, uh, Thursday night Bible study, I'm available. I'll meet with you, go to lunch with you, meet you at the office, whatever you want to do, come over to my place, however you want to do it. And we'll sit down and we'll talk about the Bible to help you understand what the Word of God says. That's what it's all about. But let me say this. I don't know what you know about the Bible, but the second coming of Christ is the theme of the Bible. Though I know that people today, I, I read all kinds of books, people say, well, the theme of the Bible is salvation. Or the theme of the Bible is God. Or the theme of the Bible is Christ. Well, there are characters in the Bible, and certainly salvation is a very important a part of the Word of God. But let me just say this. That's not the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is a kingdom. The theme of the Bible is a kingdom and a king. And the scope of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about that kingdom. Now, for us, you see, as 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 Christians, I mean, let's be honest, the most important day on my calendar is the day I got saved. Without a doubt, the most important day on my calendar is the day I got saved. And uh, I, I look at that day and I go back to Calvary, the first coming of Christ, and I think, wow, if Christ wouldn't have come and died, I could have never been saved. So for me, that is the most important day. So human nature is such that we think that that's the most important day for us. It must be the most important day for God. Not true. I'm not saying that God doesn't put a lot of importance on His first coming. Certainly He does. I'm not saying that the first coming of Christ isn't important. It is. And to me, it's the most important day. But let me tell you something. It's not the most important day in God's calendar. No, no. God has a plan. And God's plan is that the Lord is coming back. And when He came the first time, He came to present Himself as the King of the Jews. And he came, and the Bible says, to seek and to save that which was lost. And he came to give himself to this world to be the king. And what did they do? They killed him. They crucified him. They spit on him. They nailed him to a Roman cross. They, they stripped him naked. They took the divine Son of God. They took God incarnate in the flesh. And they killed him. Now that's great for me because through his death I got eternal life. But that's not God's day. God's not, God's not overly interested in the day His Son came down and died on the cross other than to save mankind. The day that God's looking for is the day His Son walks through that eastern gate and sits down on the throne of Jerusalem and is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the day. Now, we as Christians, we get short-sighted. We think that... Uh, we think that because salvation, you know, and we always... Our, our two biggest days as Christians is Christmas and Easter all dealing with the first coming of Christ, we make them such a great spectacle and we make them such a great thing that we think that that must be what God's excited about. Well, I'm not saying that God wasn't excited about saving you and me. But I'm saying God is more excited about and the theme of the Bible goes beyond that. The theme of the Bible is the day that Christ comes down and goes into Jerusalem and sits down on that throne. That's the day. Now, all the way through the Bible... There's a kingdom, there's a crown, and there's a throne. And that throne is in Jerusalem. All through the Bible, there's been two men that are after that crown. One of them rightly deserves it, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the other is the devil himself who doesn't deserve it but wants it. All history, basic history lesson, all history is built around that concept. That's why the nation of Israel, that little piece of ground the size of Texas, 
Jerusalem has been the battleground down through history and will remain the battleground till the real king comes back and sits down and is crowned the king of kings. Two gates. Horse gate. The eastern gate. One for you, one for me, one for the king. Now take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Because we want to look at this gate. And this gate, the horse gate, I want to talk to about, first of all, I want to take the second coming of Christ and bring it into two perspectives. I want to show you what it's going to mean for you and for me. Next week, we'll talk about what it's going to mean for God. And when we come away from it, you'll have all the information on the second coming of Christ that, that, that you need to really figure it out in the Bible. But I want you to turn with me to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 19. And let's go back here and let's look at this great... Uh, Let's look at this great chapter here. And I want to talk to you today about the horse gate. The gate that the horses went in. You like riding horses? Have you ever wanted to ride a horse? Well, you're going to get your chance if you're saved. We're going to talk about that today. Verse 11, 1911. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in, in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth a winepress, and the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he had a name on his vesture and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want you to know, my friend, that Bible says that I saw heaven open. Now, in the book of Revelation, heaven opens twice. Now, you're probably not going to write this, get this written down fast enough, but I'm going to give you a, a little basic outline of the book of Revelation. If you get the tape, uh, you can go back and put it up. You say, I don't have money for a tape. You come and see me and I'll buy you a tape. But this is that important. But I want you to know this. Heaven opens twice. Heaven opens once in Revelation chapter 4. Heaven opens a second time in, in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. Now, the book of Revelation looks like it's a hard book, but it's not. The book of Revelation is the book that shows you the events from the church age all the way into eternity. In chapter 1, 2, and 3, you're going to find the word church mentioned 21 times. You're going to find seven churches. And it's going to talk about the Spirit of God talking to those churches in the first three chapters. We know that they represent the seven periods of church history. We know that they represent the time period from Christ up through the rapture of the church. And we find John uh, uh, talking in the Spirit and speaking to these churches. And then in chapter 4, heaven opens. And a voice, like a trumpet, says, come up hither. And you never find the word church again in the book of Revelation. You know why? Chapter 4 is a picture of the rapture. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, picture of the church age. Chapter 4, rapture to church. Chapter 5, 6, 7, 8. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, all pictures of the tribulation period. You come to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, what happens? Heaven opens again. This time, somebody comes down. Second coming of Christ. Chapter 20, millennium. Chapter 21, new heavens and a new earth. Chapter 22, eternity. 
whole book of Revelation laid out for you, just like that. It's all that it is. First three chapters of the church age, four, chapter four, heaven opens and somebody goes up. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, right up to chapter eighteen. All pictures of the tribulation period. In chapter nineteen, heaven opens up again. This time somebody doesn't go up, somebody comes down. Second coming of Christ, and then twenty, the millennium, right in order. Twenty one, new heaven, the new earth, right in order. And then twenty two out into eternity. Everything you need right there. But I want to talk to you about that verse where it says, And I saw heaven open. The Lord's coming back. And I'm going to come back with him. And the Bible says, I saw heaven open, and it talks about a, a white horse. I, behold, a white horse. That white horse, my friend, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all we're going to save a lot of that till next week, but I want to tell you something. When he comes back, I'm coming back with him. When he comes back, it's going to be the glorious day on God's calendar. And that, it is so prevalent, and it is so unbelievably the number one doctrine in the Bible that I'm telling you. There are over 500 references in the Old Testament alone to the second coming of Christ. For every verse you give me on salvation, on this or that, whatever subject, for every verse you give me on whatever subject you pick, I'll give you 10 verses on the second coming of Christ. They are 10 to 1 in the Bible. Without a doubt, it is the greatest doctrine in all the Word of God. And when I come down here, it says, And I saw heaven open, and a, a white horse. Let me tell you something. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ has made is such an important doctrine. It has made such an impact on this world, and it will make an impact that every, every writer, every movie plot, every book you ever read, anything in this life that Hollywood comes up with or unregenerate man comes up with, let me just tell you something. When I say the Bible is the Word of God, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. I mean this book governs everything that takes place in this life. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. An unsaved man can say, I don't believe in hell. So what? He can say, I don't believe in God. So what? This book binds everything in life in heaven and earth because it is absolute truth in everything. Everything has to operate from this book whether you believe it or not. It doesn't make any difference, and sometimes it gets masked, you can't see it clearly. But let me tell you something, if you just step back and look at the Bible for what it is, everything in this world runs by it. And when I say the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is the most important teaching in the Bible, I'm not just saying that. Everything in this world, whether a man is saved or unsaved, what he does, he has to have a basis of truth. It may only be 1% truth. But he has to have a basis of truth in what he does. And when he gets that basis of truth, it's always going to come from here. White horse rider. That white horse rider has been the subject of every plot, every book that's ever been written down through history. I don't care what movie you see. I don't care what book you read. You know what you got? You got a good guy who's always associated with white. You got a bad guy who's always associated with black. And you got a, you got a woman who is always the victim. And you know what happens. The bad guy steals a woman, ties her on a railroad track. The, the good guy is kind of out of the scene someplace. Everybody thinks this poor woman's going to get run over. The old guy there in a black hat with a black suit, throwing his mustache, is laughing because he's dead. And what happens? Right at the end of the movie, here comes the good guy. The white hat on a white horse. You 
You can't get away from it. You know, I don't know what cable company you got, but on the Western channels, down on the end, like 160, you can go back there and you can still get Hopalong Cassidy, Gene Autry, Dale and Gene Evans. Gene Evans? Dale and Roy Evans. Yeah, Roy, Roy Rogers. Yeah, ah, you know what I'm talking about. Just want to see how old you were, see who knew what was going on in life. Hey, they were made back in the 50s. I have seen, no, I, I have seen Hopalong Cassidy movies at the end. Hoppy came out with a Bible and sat there and said, Look, boys and girls, the Bible's the Word of God. Hoppy believes the Bible. And you want to obey mom and dad, you ought to do what's right. And you, I've seen that on television. You don't see it today. All those guys were saved. Gene Autry was saved. Roy Rogers was saved. Hopalong Cassidy was saved. I don't know about Tano, but forget him. <laughs> but my point is this. They all were good guys. They all rode white horses. The Lone Ranger. Now there's a case study for you. Who come up with that idea? You got a guy in a white suit with a white hat on a white horse. And he's always showing up just in the nick of time. He wears a mask. He's a mystery man. And he comes in there. And you know what? He, he's, he's, he's moral. I've never seen him kiss anybody other than his horse in my whole life. And you never notice he never killed anybody? No! Bad guy got on the black horses with the black hats and they're riding off. He comes charging up there and Tano says, mm, oh, they went that way. And you know what he does? He pulls out his gun, shoots up in the sky, it wrecks off off a tree, it hits a steel beam, comes down and hits the guy on the arm, doesn't even kill him. And every time he shows up, right in the nick of time, on his white horse, a mystery man with a mask, and he rides off into the sunset, everybody says, who was that masked man? I know who he is. He's a white horse rider. He's the man that, 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 that all the writings and all the books and everything I watched the old movie. My wife and I, our favorite movie is The Bride of Frankenstein. Made back in the 30s. And I love Frankenstein. But when Frankenstein gets a bride, oh, that's a trip. Oh, it's funny. And we, we laugh at it all the time. In fact, we, 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 if it's coming on, we're going to watch it. You know, for one line. We just watch it for one line. I'm not going to tell you what line it is. But it is funny. It is hilarious. But you ever start with Frankenstein? You ever, where, where's that plot come from? Here's what you got. You got a man who's a doctor who creates life. And at the end of the movie, the creation kills the creator. Christ was the great physician. He created life! But it was a monster. And the creation killed the creator. I turn over there and I go to the bookstore and I said, oh, here's a good book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Spencer Tracy made it famous back in the 40s. It's an old-time classic movie. You know the plot. 
Here's a man that uh, uh, he drinks a potion and he turns into a beast and he's out there uh, doing all kinds of terrible things. And, on, and then when he comes back, he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's a kind, gentle, sweet man. And we look at that and I think to myself, that's Romans chapter 7. You've got two natures. One of them's a wicked, sorry nature that'll do all the depravity things. The other one is the godly nature. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow? Yes, she did. You can't get away from it. I look at the, I look at the, the lone ranger over there. He's riding around on a white horse, always doing good. Never killing anybody. Never being immoral. Always showing up at the nick of time and saving the day. Where'd that plot come from? Oh, by the way, He's got a counterpart. Rides a black horse. Has a black cape, black suit. He's got the right religion. And he goes around marking things. You won't beat the book. You won't beat the book. I mean, you sit down there with that television set in the Bible, you can learn all kinds of things. Look at Revelation chapter 19, channel 11. I mean, verse 11, excuse me. <laughs> and I saw heaven open. Good guy, white, bad guy, black suit, black hat, woman, church, Israel. I saw heaven open. He's coming back. The white horse rider is so prevalent in history and the theme of the Bible is so prevalent that even an unsaved man can't write a book, make a movie without a good guy, a bad guy, and an innocent woman. And you know the theme. The good guy looks like he gets killed and out of the picture. The bad guy's going to win. Got the woman tied to the railroad track. Got the woman locked up. And at the end of the movie, here comes the hero. Oh, I'm telling you, that Bible says, and I saw heaven open, then it had a white horse rider, and look down here, look down here, uh, look down here in verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us. That's us. That's us. That's us. I'm coming back with him. Now let me tell you what the horse gate does for you. The horse gate helps you keep your perspective. Because I want to tell you, in this world, you can lose your perspective. And you can, if you're not careful, you can, sorry, you can still go to church, still read your Bible, but you come to the point where you wonder why you're here and what your purpose is. That'll never happen if the emphasis is always put around the second coming of Christ, the greatest doctrine in the Bible, and you realize this is the horse gate for you and me and the eastern gate for the king. And all oh, those armies... That's me and you. We're coming back. We're coming back. That's what the second coming of Christ means to me. It, it makes rhyme and reason all this mess in planet Earth. It makes rhyme and reason why there's so much heartache and so much, so much destitution and all the problems. We look at America, the great Christian nation, quote unquote. And we look at all the depravity and all the filth and all the ungodliness and all the throwing away of the things of God. And we wonder what has happened in America. I'll tell you what's happened. We're moving right along on God's program. 
And if you're not careful, you're in that. And you get, you have to see it every day, hear it every day, smell it every day, taste it every day, and you'll lose your perspective if you do not remember He's coming back. I'm coming with Him. Romans chapter 8, that great chapter in the book of Romans that lays out the doctrine of my relationship as a Christian to the glorified body I'm going to get someday. And it shows me how Christ's death on the cross in relationship gives me that body. He says, because I'm a Christian, because I'm saved, because you and I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we have a heritage, we have an inheritance. He says, children, heirs of God. And then join heirs with Jesus Christ. Whatever the king gets, you and I get. We get excited about things down here, don't we? Things down here steal the glitter from the Bible, from this church, from God Himself. And, and, and in moderation, it's, everything's okay that you, you probably want to do in your life other than just sin. Nothing wrong with going to a ball game. Nothing wrong with enjoying this or enjoying that. But I'm telling you, we as God's people today trying to build a church must understand that there is a higher calling and a higher purpose that down here in this life, it really doesn't make a difference. It isn't going to last. All that glitters is not gold. But there's coming a day when He comes back, which is the theme of the Bible, and I'm coming back with Him. Then we're going to reign with Him. Then we're going to be an heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He says in verse 18, and oh, what a true statement it is. In light of the fact that you're going to be a joint heir with Christ, heir of God and His child, and get a glorified body, He says, for the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I look around this world, it's such a joke. The older I get, the more I like to watch the news. Three stooges aren't on anymore. I need amusement. I look at it. What a joke. I mean, I love our president. I pray for our president. But let me tell you something, sir. If you think you're going to bring peace to the Middle East with any plan, you're wrong. They can't say, well, why can't one side just honor the peace treaty? Why can't the Palestinians just not kill anybody? Why do the Jews have to retaliate afterwards? Why can't they just do it? And they keep getting up after more bombings and more people killed. And everybody says, well, we just ask both sides to use restraint. Well, we just ask both sides to step back, breathe four big deep breaths, and then just take another look at this. Let me tell you something. Figure it out. Those two boys haven't got along for 4,000 years, and they're not going to get along now. And besides that, there's somebody else that wants Jerusalem. There's a false king that wants to go in there, and he'll do everything he can to keep God's people out, to put his people in. Peace. Peace. Do you ever see the formula for peace in the Bible? World peace? I'm not very smart. I don't have a degree. I'm not a politician. I don't have any great law degree, nor do I have a, 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 an award for bringing world peace. Nobody's going to ever give me the Nobel Peace Award, but I got the answer to peace. I can bring peace to this world in 15 minutes. 
if you just listen to me. And I'll charge you half of what you're paying. You're paying $4 billion a month. Give me $2 billion a month and I'll end it for you. And you still have $2 billion to do what you want to do with. Do you ever see the formula for peace in the Bible? At the first coming of Christ, Jesus showed up. What an interesting time that is. And though it's not the theme of the Bible, it's very important because it's part of the theme. The first coming and the second coming are very close. And though I said that the theme of the Bible is not Christ, the theme of the Bible is not God, and the theme of the Bible is not salvation, the theme of the Bible is a kingdom and a king. When Christ came, he came as king. And when he showed up, if you're paying attention, the heavenly host told you and me how to have world peace. You ever see it? It's the formula. It's the world peace formula. Found all the way back here in Luke chapter 2. I mean, let's just go back and look at it. Luke chapter 2, the Lord is born. He's down there. And, I mean, it's, it's so easy. I just can't believe you can't get it. Luke chapter 2. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. It all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, out of Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of the lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary as a spouse wife, being great with child. And it was so that while they were there, the days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. Christ is born, first coming of Christ. That she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Didn't leave a light on for him. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Here it comes. For unto you is born this day. This day, this day, this day. And he was born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, uh, with, with an angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. Every Christmas. Every holiday, you see the little banners. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. United Nations, they got up there and they wanted to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward more men. They were started after World War One, and there I said, well, not no war anymore. There's been 275 wars since the United Nations came in. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Oh, hey, that's only half the formula. Look at the first part of the verse. Glory to God in the highest, then peace on earth, goodwill toward men. There'll be no peace on earth till this nation, this country, this world gives glory to God in the highest, then the peace comes. So the world's not going to give him glory now. That's why the Lord's not going to come back at the second coming like he came the first coming. Did you ever analyze that? The first time he came, the Romans hated him. We studied it. They hated his doctrine. We studied it a couple of weeks back. 
So they crucified him. Some young Christian one time, a good little guy, wanted to learn the Bible. Years ago, asked me a question in one of my Bible studies saying, why does Christ not come back the second time like he did the first time? Good question. Could you imagine that? Let's say that Christ showed up today just like he did the first coming. Walked into the average church in Kansas City. Walked into Washington. Said, okay, I'm back. Well, let me tell you. Catholics couldn't accept him. He thought Mary was a sinner just like all other women. Needed to be saved. Most Baptists couldn't accept him. They want to know what school he graduated from. Charismatics couldn't buy into him. Jesus never spoke in tongues. Mormons couldn't buy into it. He wouldn't have more than one wife. The Unitarians couldn't buy into it because Jesus had a doctrine. Every religion on the face of this planet, other than Bible-believing Christianity, could not accept him today. And let me tell you something. If you think they wouldn't kill him this time like they did the last time, you're sorely mistaken. So he ain't coming back that way this time. He's coming back as the king on a white horse. And I'm coming with him. And he's going to reign in a righteous reign in Jerusalem under a rod of iron. A little boy one time. Just a little run of a kid. And every time he'd go to school, two or three bullies would beat him up and take his lunch money. Every day they'd look for him. The little guy, he'd try to defend himself for a while, but he realized he was outnumbered and he was getting beat up every day. But one day he got out of school about five minutes early. He took off around the corner, got down to the end of the block and looked back. And just about that time, those three big boys come out of that thing and one of them, the biggest one, saw him. Started chasing him. That little guy lived about nine blocks away. And he's running. With them little legs couldn't hardly get him going. That old boy, he was twice his size, twice as fast. And he was gaining on him. That little kid got halfway home, looked over his shoulder. That boy was only about 200 yards behind him. He got to that thing where he, he was about 50 feet from his house and his gate. And he looked back and that boy was right on his tail. The kid got the gate open, got in that thing and got around the back of the house. And, and, and but he looked over his shoulder. He went around the house and that boy just leaped right over that, over that hedge and over that fence right on his tail. And he got around the back of that house and got his hand on the door. And that old boy clamped down on his shoulder and said, now I got you. About that time, back door opened. His big brother just got home from the Marine Corps on leave. Come out the back door. Sergeant Stripes, campaign medals. That old boy looked at that big old Marine, looked at that little guy, and said, Hey, you want to beat me up now? Want to take my lunch money now? Want to bull me around now? Go ahead. My big brother's here. Hey, this old world will kick you. This old world will beat you up. This old world will bully you. It's okay. Wait till our big brother gets here. Wait till he comes back. Wait till he gets back. Oh, I'm telling you, my friend, man's efforts for world peace are worthless. There'll be no peace till he comes back. There'll be no peace to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Peace. And let me just say to you as a Christian, understanding this doctrine will get you through anything this old world can throw at you. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that as a Christian in this life, saved and doing all that you can do for God, 
And I know we all fail. I don't ever point my finger at anybody. I'm just saying, I'm not going to stand here today and tell you it's not going to be tough. I'm not going to tell you there's not going to be heartache in your Christian life. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you there's not going to be sickness or discouragement or, or health issues or grieving if somebody dies. I'm not going to tell you that there's not going to be disappointment. I'm not going to tell you there's not going to be sorrow. I'm not going to tell you that. The Bible says that those things, those things are, are, are in this world because of sin. I, I look over to Hebrews chapter 11. You don't have to turn to it. But Hebrews chapter 11 is God's great hall of fame. And he lists 16 great men who if you study their lives independently will show you that they tried to love God, wanted to love God, did love God, but they struggled with the things of this old world just like you and I. And everywhere in their lives, there was heartache, there was death, there was discouragement, there was failure, there was grieving, there was sorrow, there was disappointment. Every one of them. But, oh, bless God, I read down there in Hebrews chapter 11, and I think Abraham sums it all up for you and for me. He sums it all up for everybody when he says, yes, he went through these perils. Yes, he went through this sickness and discouragement. But the bottom line, Abraham says, for he, he looked, he looked for a city with foundations whose builder and maker was God. Now, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm looking for. I don't care about this whole world. I don't care about this life. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. But I got some news for you. It's only temporary. There'll only be a time when you have to sorrow. There'll only be disappointment for a short time. He's coming back. And in my life, my perspective is forget this world. I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. My pilgrimage, I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He's coming back. No matter how tough it gets, it's only temporary. And I'm going to tell you something. He said that the preaching ministry needs to be toward the east because we need to never forget the horse gate, the east gate. It'll change your whole perspective. It'll give you purpose in life. In my ministry over the years, there are two things that stick out. One of them is the saddest thing I ever experienced. And it didn't happen to me. It happened to a young lady. And, I, and I, 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 I'm not going to tell you about that, but it was, if somebody would ask you what is the most tragic, saddest thing in all of the years of your life dealing with people in the Word of God, I would, it, that, I would think of that in a second. It was so devastating and it was so unbelievable that if I told you this morning, there would not, in a woman, anyhow, there would not be a dry eye in this place. It absolutely just took it out of me. And then there was the greatest thing I ever saw. If somebody would say, what is the thing that just lit your burners more than anything else? It was just an event that I'm going to tell you about. It was a long time ago. A godly couple, up in their years, loved God and loved the Word of God, believed the Word of God. They were role models for me. They didn't live in Kansas City. It was back in Ohio, where I went to church. And I used to run around with Mel Sabaka back then, and he was the guy that really taught me the Bible. Many of you know him. Others don't know him. We'll meet him at some point in our little building of a church here. He'll be, he'll be around. 
And one night, he called me on the phone. He said that this man was dying. And he said, I'm going to go over. Will you go with me? And I said, sure. Never forget as long as I live. And some of you, this is going to sound corny. Maybe in time as you grow, it won't be corny. It, I, I never forgot it. It really changed my whole life in the perspective of, of looking at things. I've never forgotten it as long as I live. It's not like I've, not, I've forgotten the, the bad thing. We got to the hospital. I could look out inside the windows there and I could see him laying in the hospital bed and I knew he was just about dead. And his wife, godly woman, he was a godly man. He was holding his hand. She had the Bible open when she was obviously reading through the Bible at some point, but now he was just about gone. I stood there and knelt up and prayed with him, you know, and talked to him, and I did what I could do, which was not very much, because I was just in the learning process of all this stuff, you know, and I was just there praying for Bell and praying for them. So I stood back along the door, and then Bell came back, and we just stood there waiting for the moment. We knew it was coming. We didn't want her to be alone. Family hadn't got there yet. Strangest thing happened. He put a little tug on her arm. <coughs> she leaned over. <coughs> and he was whispering something in her ear. And it went on about 20, 30 seconds. And then she kind of stood back and she had a smile on her face. He had a smile on his face. Five minutes later, he was gone. I felt like <coughs> he was telling her he loved her, telling her goodbye. And I'm sure that he did. <coughs> I stood there not knowing what to do. Difficult time. But she had such a peace in her face and such a joy. Bell and I were standing there and <coughs> family showed up. They all were doing everything, you know, and she walked out there and I was opening the door for her and Bell was there and and Mel uh, just said to her, well, I'm glad you got to say your goodbye. Because so many people don't. She said, you don't understand. I'm standing there, man. She said, you don't understand. You didn't say goodbyes. John told me that he picked me out a good heart. myself. They understand something about God and book that I don't understand. How many of God's people at the time of death or focus on the theme of the Bible and not themselves? I thought myself. As I went home that night, I thought, Bob, what did not down someplace and don't ever forget it. I never had to write it down because I never forgot without a doubt, it was the most incredible thing I've ever experienced in my life. It changed my perspective. <laughs> whatever I do, whatever I preach, whoever I deal with, whether it's building this church with you, somebody Bible on Thursday night, or whatever, behind in my mind, I try honest to God, and God knows my heart. I honest to God, you know my heart, Lord, when I preach or when I teach, I preach and teach 
like it be the last time I will before the Lord comes back. Because I know deep down in my heart, it may well be. And by saying that, I say this. You, my friend, better listen like it may be the last message you hear. Because it may well be. The Bible says if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. Abraham said, I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Oh, that's what Paul meant in Romans 8 when he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He said, Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, shall peril, shall sport. Those are all physical things. Then in verse 38, he jumped to the spiritual side. Death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things come, height, death. They're all spiritual things. In other words, he said, Ain't nothing going to separate you. Nothing. Three tests. That's the spiritual growth. <clears throat> How do you take the message today? Test of love in the book. How do you get along when you miss it today? Test for the love of Christ. Ask the question. Had anybody saved five years or less, I give you a buy. Anybody hasn't been saved at least five years and really plugged in, I give you a buy on this. This is not fair to dump this on you. Talking to us, you spiritual people, you folks that claim to love God of the Bible, I believe you do. The one test the love of Christ is the second coming. Let me ask you a question. God grant you one prayer right now. You say, Bob, you pray it, it happens. What would it do? I can't speak for you. I know what it would be for me. Be the Lord, come on, let's go. Last prayer of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, John writes, you know the last thing he says? He displayed all that God is doing. He did all the miracles and all the great things that God was doing. And the last thing he says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, is even so, come, Lord Jesus. I'm in this world, folks, but I'm not of this world. Sure. I enjoy life. I have no death. Mark on me that I'm trying to die for Christ. I like living. I enjoy my family. Enjoy my grandbaby. I enjoy you. I enjoy our time together. I love you more than you'll ever know. And I love our time together. I love the church and God's given us. Forget the what? Only temporary. Don't ever think this permanent. Don't ever think anything in your life is permanent. Or you know God can take away like that your health, your kids, your car, your family, your house. It's all temporary. Don't get locked up in those things. I'm not saying don't give their due respect. Obviously, you do. I'm saying it's only temporary. It's only temporary. It's only temporary. Someday, you and I are going to stand before him. And we're going to give an account. That's what we're saying. That's why I say to you all the time I don't care what you do. I don't care what you know and what you don't know about the Bible. God doesn't either, as long as. It's put in your life. You say, God, from this point on, I'm going to give you everything I can. You're going to become the number one priority. doesn't mean you have to quit the job and shake your head and go to the airport. It means you make the book God a priority in your life. Yeah, you see that. 
He told me, you're going to pick out a good horse. That's somebody who understood the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. God help us to look at it with a reality like that. Father, 